the, the whole basis of Friedmanite economics is that if you leave people and organizations to their own devices, they will act rationally and logically in economic terms. Now, unfortunately, and I have many degrees in economics because I had to study endlessly to stay out of the apartheid military. <laughs> and, you know, it's my opinion that that's bullshit that neoliberalism is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated against humanity. And it underpins so much of what has gone profoundly wrong in the world. And we must never lose sight of what is at the root. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. But... Um, so Andrew, uh, welcome, welcome to the show, man. It's it's a pleasure to to have you on. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's a, yeah. As I, as I mentioned before, like you're you're uh, you've had quite the career and quite the <laughs> quite the time, sort of yeah, around the world. You've had an unbelievable amount of experiences in in politics and in different different countries. So it's yeah, fascinating to to be able to chat to you. So um, maybe we should start with giving people an idea of who you are. Sure. So, so do you want to yeah? So do my name is Andrew Feinstein. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm originally South African. I grew up primarily in South Africa. Um, had to leave the country in the mid-1980s to avoid serving in the apartheid military, which was compulsory for white males for two years. Um, spent about five years outside the country, very fortunate to study in the US and the UK. So I never describe it as exile because I had a lot of colleagues in the liberation movement, mainly the ANC, who who suffered a really tough exile. I studied, which you know was a privilege rather than a sacrifice. And then as soon as the ANC was unbanned in um, 1990 and Mandela was released from jail, I was able to go back. And I went back, worked as a facilitator in the constitutional negotiations that led to our first democratic elections in 94 and then became an ANC member of parliament in our first democratic parliament. Mm. Um, and then had a deal with corruption in my own party as a result of a very corrupt arms deal. And that sort of set me off. First of all, I was forced out of parliament because I refused to stop an investigation into a very corrupt deal. And that set me off investigating, writing about and making films about the global arms trade and the impact it has on governance in the world and the way we live and unfortunately the way we die as well. Mm. Was that the first time that you'd had like an interaction or like the first time you'd sort of realized the scale of that, of that industry? You know, I had absolutely zero knowledge of it. Um, even while I was in parliament, I mean, my focus was mainly on public sector financial management. I drafted legislation around that for our new democracy. And I was the senior ANC member on the main financial oversight committee, a committee that was called the Public Accounts Committee. And we received this report from the country's Auditor General about a $10 billion arms deal. 
in which there was prima facie evidence of huge amounts of corruption. I mean, a conservative estimate puts the corruption at around $350 million. And this was basically five contracts from five different European countries. The biggest bribes were paid by Britain's BAE systems, £115 million to win one contract. Um, that they weren't even shortlisted for, that they would never have won without the corruption. And literally, this was the first time I'd ever come into contact with anything to do with the arms trade. Yeah. It's, it, so what, what is the, what does that, that feel like when you suddenly realize that so much of the things that you've been trying to work on and the, like, the, the country that you've been trying to rebuild in a way after yeah a lot of some really awful times and some really disgusting yeah. things that happened in human history. Yeah. <laughs> um, were you angry or like disappointed or sort of confused? So, you know, the reality is what happened is the ANC was this extraordinary liberation movement led by people like Oliver Tambo, Nelson Mandela. Um, and the struggle against apartheid in South Africa which, you know, had been a racist oligarchy for over 350 years, um, was, was an extraordinary struggle. And the struggle was won by a combination of mobilization of the vast majority of ordinary South Africans who effectively rose up against um, this dictatorial regime with extraordinary help from the global anti-apartheid movement because the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign against apartheid South Africa was crucial in, in ending apartheid because what that did was it suddenly made any imports into South Africa so much more expensive for the apartheid state. And when the banks under pressure from students around the world, Barclays and Chase Manhattan, as it was then called, were boycotted by students in the US and the UK. And they were terrified. They were losing their future customers. So they not only withdrew from South Africa, but they also made the sort of terms of trade for South Africa much more expensive. And so it was all of those incredible factors. But then once we were in power, it was very quick that we, you know, there's no way that a democratic South Africa was any worse or is any worse than anywhere else. It was a matter for me, the tragedy of it was how quickly we adopted this sort of very tawdry global norms and standards for politics and economics. Mm. And, you know, we, we sort of felt the mixture of, of business and politics, which, which I think has really poisoned, um, so-called representative democracy. Um, and I saw it manifest amongst my colleagues who felt they were entitled to benefit personally from massive state contracts. And yes, it was obviously a feeling of huge disappointment, um, but it was, it, the anger wasn't directed so much at, at my own movement or, or my own party as at the state of the world. Mm. Because when, you know, when I first discovered this arms deal and we started investigating it as a committee, which is where my sort of investigative stuff started, I at first thought that we had just been particularly naive um, and that we'd just been done in by these international defense companies and their governments. 
Because when I talk about BAE systems, I mean, Tony Blair was absolutely central in enabling and facilitating the corruption and the deal. Um, and it was the same with each of the countries. Um, and I sort of felt, you know, are we just particularly naive and stupid? Because none of us expected to be part of government. Mm. We were all activists. Yeah. And, you know, in 94, there were three of us in the ANC, three of us in this mass movement who had any experience of finance or economics, just to give you an indication. And how, I, how, how many? Oh, there were, I mean, in terms of people within the parliaments, within the provincial parliaments, within the departments of government, we're talking about thousands of people, probably, you know, 10,000. And there were literally three of us with any sort of background in these areas. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, of course it's going to happen. We're going to be naive. We're going to be taken for a ride. And then as I started looking into it, I discovered that what was going on was happening all over the world all the time. That, for instance, BAE Systems, at the time that they were paying bribes on the South African deal, they were involved in seven or eight other deals around the world where they were paying millions and millions in bribes. So, you know, some of my colleagues and comrades, a guy called Jacob Zuma, who was our deputy president at the mm -hmm. time, became president, and who I'm going to give evidence against in his corruption trial in April of this year. Wow. You know, he took the equivalent of about 25,000 pounds, which in relative terms is very little. And of course, he should suffer the consequences because he betrayed the trust of the people of South Africa. But BAE Systems and Tony Blair were paying about a billion pounds of bribes all over the world at that time. So who is more corrupt? And I think that's really where my anger and my frustration was, was directed, mm. was at these enormously powerful corporations and politicians who claimed to be forces of good, who had effectively corrupted and corroded our incredibly young democracy. This was four years after our first democratic election that this deal started. Mm. So you've said that the that you're like surprised at how fast South Africa adopted those like global norms of business and sort of that intertwining of, of business and politics. So and so my understanding of 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 what happened sort of uh, in that apartheid movement and post-apartheid uh, post South Africa, um, a lot of it has come from reading the work of Naomi Klein. Um, and she points at the sort of global corporate structure as being the the reason that the yeah post-apartheid South Africa sort of degraded from the the original vision that was put forwards into as you sort of put it there that just like the acceptance of just becoming like every other neoliberal Western or developed or I don't know how you want to describe it but that, that sort of um, style of of governance like. What do you think it was or who do you think it was that was leading that push towards that yeah. or, the, or the cause of that? So in terms of individuals, it was primarily our first deputy president, um, Thabo Mbeki, um, who was effectively, even though he was called the deputy president, he was actually sort of the prime minister in Mandela's government. Mandela was very much focused on reconciliation, on, on bringing everybody together in South Africa, which, of course, he was a genius at just because of his personal history and his personality um, and his worldview. 
Mbeki was more of a technocrat. He had also been seduced, I think is not an inappropriate word, by what at the time we called the Washington Consensus, mm. which, you know, today we would understand as the sort of the orthodoxy of neoliberalism. Mm. Um, and, you know, those of us who had any finance or economic skills or those who were going to be trained in those skills, you know, the places we were sent were places like the IMF and the World Bank. We would go to the Treasury in the US, the Treasury in the UK, um, where we would be told there is no alternative. You know, you are a small, closed economy now wanting to open up to this global economy. Here are the rules. Play by them or die, effectively. And the rules were, you follow these macroeconomic policies, so you have minimal inflation, that was the main thing. You have minimal debt, um, very little state role in the economy, and you make the economy incredibly welcoming to big business from around the world. That was very simplistically put, the formula. And it's there was a, a huge contestation within the ANC and within the society between that sort of approach, which um, you could describe as a sort of a supply-led approach to economics versus a more progressive approach, which was described as a demand-led approach, where, you know, you would address South Africa's massive socioeconomic um, deficits. We required over 2 million new houses to be built. We required thousands of new schools. We required massive public infrastructure, um, healthcare. I mean, virtually everything you can think of. You know, we had 13% we had of the population, the white population of which I was a part, had everything mm -hmm. and lived an existence that we, in fact, better than we could have lived in the UK or the US or anywhere else because we had good weather as well. Um, <laughs> and we had beaches and, you know, and decent sports teams and that sort of thing. Um, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why the sports and cultural boycott was also so important of apartheid because of the fanaticism around sport. And, you know, the sort of supply-led model basically let that continue. Continue to make this country a very attractive place for big business and international investment will flow in. The demand-led side said, let's address our socioeconomic realities and employ millions of people in doing that in very low entry level jobs and stimulate demand in the economy in that way. Um, and unfortunately, Mbeki had been completely sold on the sort of the neoliberal model. And that's the approach that we adopted. And, you know, Mbeki was, was something of a Leninist by ideology in certain respects, in that he believed the party was paramount and all important. And very soon it became apparent to me, like in the arms deal, that he was fine with corruption if it benefited the party. Hmm. And he was fine with corruption as long as it benefited his political allies. So he wanted his political enemies within the party to be investigated, but none of his political allies. And so it was really, I mean, I suppose the forces of international capitalism that were responsible for pushing us in the direction that we went. And Thabo Mbeki was the most influential figure who sold that vision within the ANC. And it's a vision that to this day remains incredibly contested within the organization. Mm. So like, what do you think it is that 
Because this happens all the time. <laughs> like, Unfortunately, yeah, not, happened in a lot of places. Yeah, not specifically the, the exact situation that yeah. happened in South Africa, but, but like Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, is just like a, a world history of this going in, in, in so many developed nations or developing nations around the world. So she talks about how the sort of neoliberal consensus took over in um, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, um, all through Latin America. Um, then there was the post-apartheid apartheid South Africa. There was the former Yugoslavia when the breakup of the USSR. So this keeps happening, basically, yeah. where, where this ideology that benefits the people who are in power and have been for a long time um, and about the wealthy and it, it seems to continually sort of rear its head and seduce yeah. people at the top what do you think it is that's making them abandon the things that they were meant to or the things that they professed to want like do you think it's maybe a case of so you talked about like you needed like two million new houses and there was a lot of things to spend and maybe for a, a new democracy yeah. as such like they could make the claim that economically south africa couldn't afford it without you know capital from sure. private industry or like what, that, what is driving I, I, I think that? that's part of it but i th i think there's been a whole discourse and naomi klein talks about this in the book which which is an extraordinary book i mean one of the most important books um of, of the last couple of decades in my opinion um and she's not only a brilliant writer but a great activist as well um i think it's a combination of things I think a completely distorted picture of economic history is presented. And, you know, it's not like people engaged in a liberation struggle have the time to rigorously study economic history in detail. So we told about the Southeast Asian economic miracle. Well, the reality is that wasn't a neoliberal miracle. It was a state-led economic development miracle in which you know, these countries placed huge protective barriers around themselves so that their domestic industries could flourish. You try and do that now and you get punished by global markets. Um, but you never hear that side of the story. You know, the, the former Soviet Union, Russia in particular, you hear about Jeffrey Sachs mm. marketizing the economy and all Russians getting shares yeah. and this, that and the other. You know, they don't talk about the extraordinary human suffering, the levels of inequality. Um, that were a consequence of of what he did. So I think, first of all, we're sold a sort of a partial picture and it's a jaundiced and biased picture. Second of all, I think it has to do with personal greed and corruption, unfortunately. I think that we've seen in many liberation movements that there have been individuals. I don't think the movements as a whole necessarily get corrupted, but I think there are crucial individuals who are sometimes personally corrupted or see the corrupting of the political class as an important way for them to access and hold on to power. And I think that the West, if I can call it that, um, preys on that. You know, there's also, there's John Perkins' brilliant book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, mm. in which he talks about, you know, very bright guy comes out of an Ivy League university, gets employed by a management consultancy that's actually a CAI front. <laughs> And what's his job? His job is to travel through Latin America and corrupt leaders who could be hostile to the United States. And you corrupt them materially. You also try and get them into compromising situations that they, you can use against them. Um, so I think these are, are some of the techniques that are used. I do think, as, as Naomi Klein suggests, that it is 
a very clear and explicit strategy that is used. And what is it doing? It is effectively opening the world's countries to US companies effectively. And then there are also the poodles like Great Britain, which, you know, we jump on the coattails and we do whatever the US tells us. And, you know, the sort of visions of, of Tony Blair slavishly doing whatever George W. Bush told him to do and then lying to the British people, to his own cabinet and to parliament that he wasn't doing it. Mm. Um, is, is the prime example of it. And, you know, our companies get little bits of tidbits that the Americans don't want. You know, Royal Dutch Shell gets a little bit, BAE Systems gets a little bit, Rolls-Royce gets a little bit, etc., etc. And I, I think it's making, it's effectively turning the world into one huge neoliberal market. And to be honest with you, um, we made a film of one of my books on the arms trade. The film's called The Shadow World, mm. made by an absolutely extraordinary Belgian director called Johan Grimon Prez. And one of the things we have in the film very early on is Milton Friedman, who was really the, the sort of the, the brains behind neoliberalism, if you will, um, talking about, you know, the, the Chilean economic miracle. So, you know, he thought the fact that Augusto Pinochet, with help from Margaret Thatcher, British intelligence, the CIA and others, killing tens of thousands of, of leftists in Chile was actually a good thing, imposing extraordinary austerity on the country for decades. Friedman thinks, you know, all of that stuff was good. And yeah, you know, if it wasn't a democracy, it doesn't matter because it was a market economy. And, and we have someone confronting him, a brilliant American economic historian and she points out some of the realities of this and the reason that we locate the film so firmly within this sort of neoliberal paradigm is because what neoliberalism also um, gave to the world was mass privatization the notion that it's only private companies that can do anything competently um, and deregulation you know Companies, I mean, because the, the whole basis of Friedmanite economics is that if you leave people and organizations to their own devices, they will act rationally and logically in economic terms. Now, unfortunately, and I have many degrees in economics because I had to study endlessly to stay out of the apartheid military. <laughs> and, you know, it's my opinion that that's bullshit that neoliberalism is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated against humanity. And it underpins so much of what has gone profoundly wrong in the world. And we must never lose sight of what is at the root. So we study the arms trade because of its devastating impacts on the world in all sorts of ways, which we can talk about more. But primarily, we study the global arms trade and try and expose it because of what it represents. It represents the very worst of the ways in which we're governed and the ways in which we are organized economically. Maybe it would be useful here just to like define neoliberalism for people because, um, so when I was writing my first book, and this is something I've heard from a lot of people is that I lose them all at chapter four, <laughs> which is all about neoliberalism. And this is just because it's, it's such a difficult concept sometimes to try and pin down. And so many different people take it to mean so many different things. Yeah. So for me, at least, maybe you can correct me on, on oh. so you haven't, with your many economics degrees. Um, the, so my understanding of it was basically this trifecta of um, deregulation, um, lower taxes, and the 
privatization slash sale of state assets of, of like all the state industries, basically anything that had been previously run by government. Like that's, that's basically how I would define it. Like, is there anything you'd feel? I, I, th I think that's exactly right. And I'm very impressed that you get people to chapter four. <laughs> um, I also have this problem and I'd love to get people to chapter four sometimes. But I think the only things I would add to that is it has a very particular view of the role of the state. Um, which is a minimal role. Um, I mean, neoliberalism in its most extreme forms doesn't even believe that the state should in any way regulate private enterprise. And you see that manifest in things like um, some judgments in the US Supreme Court, mm. where corporations are treated as, as individual people when it comes to, for instance, political contributions, et cetera, et cetera. So they really shouldn't be regulated at all is what they're saying. And with that comes the notion that the state should spend as little as possible. So public debt should be kept very, very low. Governments shouldn't borrow. Um, that's the first thing. And governments obviously shouldn't spend. So all governments should do is spend money on things that will make it a better environment for business to flourish. That's pretty much it. Um, so, you know, healthcare should be privatized. Um, correctional services, jails, etc., should be privatized. War should be privatized. Um, you know, maybe the state can deal with traffic lights, but that might be privatized too. I mean, roads no, I've seen can libertarians be make the case. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a world without traffic lights. I mean, it really, it's, yeah, whenever I talk to libertarians, it is something that I do raise with them. And some of them do say that, yeah, maybe they tolerate traffic lights, um, which, which is big. Um, <laughs> no, but I think, and I think the reason those are so crucial is because, again, this is a nonsense. You know, the biggest spending states tend to be right-wing states. I mean, Republicans in America always totally outspend Democrats, but what they outspend them on is actually giving benefits to the private sector and to very wealthy individuals through tax cuts. And the reality is, if we look at economic history, we look at Southeast Asia, um, those economies were so dependent on state spending to be able to flourish in the way that they did. They were so dependent on state protection. They were so dependent, you know, this notion that you have to have a debt level below a certain percentage in relation to the amount of money a country is generating, the so-called GDP, um, it's just a nonsense, frankly. Different economic circumstances require different sort of economic interventions by the state. So when an economy is really struggling for, you know, because of a COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, it's actually incredibly important that the state is spending money and putting money into the economy yeah. because otherwise job losses are going to be as extreme as they are in South Africa at the moment, for instance. Yeah. And it's that sort of notion that there is this one theory that is right in every single circumstance that is just such a complete nonsense. And the fact that Friedman and his acolytes and the politicians who... Um, Pay, pay their respects um, at his feet, metaphorically speaking. Um, the fact that they are so narrow-minded that they actually think that there is one economic theory that applies to all circumstances. You know, we don't need to have any degrees. We just need to have a, a basic level of common sense to know that that's absurd. And that like everything, as circumstances change, you have to change the ways in which in which you deal with them. But that is the nub of neoliberalism. Yeah. Yeah. An economy definitely doesn't 
it's not the same as the physical world. Like you can't have a grand unifying theory of economics that's perfect in the way you might be able to have like string theory or like relativity or something. Well, well, exactly. You know, we're human beings. And this notion that we, the basic assumptions of neoliberalism is that if left to our own devices, we will all behave rationally and logically as understood by neoliberals, which is this notion of, of a homo economos. Um, we will all do what is for our own best benefit. Mm. And as a consequence, the outcome will be the best for society as a whole. Now, Milton Friedman put it slightly more crudely than that. He said, basically, what my theory is saying is that greed is good. Mm. If we all behave like greedy bastards, then the world is going to have the optimal outcome. And unfortunately, we've seen many societies where those in power have behaved like greedy bastards and the outcomes have been <laughs> disastrous. And I think we can look, you know, South Africa today, the United Kingdom today, the United States of America today, pretty much a large, large percentage of the world's countries. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's such a weird thing because this, they, it's hung up on this idea that that greed is good. And they seem to like marry it with the like rugged individuality that comes with with libertarianism and i i very much like um very sympathetic to that side of it in the you know the individual is really important i agree but that doesn't mean that we should just you know have everything we want all the time or just you know it's 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 a it's a case of like trying to find a, a way to say okay we want to take that human trait and unleash it in a way that you know tries to temper the bad consequences of it you know you know it's absolutely i mean this notion you know individuality is an amazing thing i think you know having grown up in a country like south africa um where you have such a diverse population in so many ways. However way you cut it, it's incredibly diverse. 16 different languages are spoken? We have 11 official yeah. languages, and it's estimated that there are 16 or 17 languages that are actually used within the country. Um, and different cultures, you know, and it manifests in, in so many ways, different musical traditions, um, different family traditions, all sorts of things. And I think that's extraordinary. I mean, I embrace that. And, you know, for myself, I... I regard myself as I would hope most people regard themselves as a singular individual um, based on my life experiences, my parents, my background, all sorts of things. Um, and I think that's something to celebrate. But I think it is the way in which we unify for the common good within that breadth of diversity that is so important. And neoliberalism explicitly and profoundly undermines that and says, don't think about the person next to you. Think only about yourself. And I think down that road lies suffering and ruin. Mm. And unfortunately, I think that is the lesson of the neoliberal paradigm that we've existed in for the last, I would say, since the late 1970s, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the, the era that, that there's an economist I'm a huge fan of. is Mark E. Thomas, who runs the 99% organization. Yeah. he's just he's he's such a like great he's so succinct in laying out like the the, the yeah. issues that that this kind of thinking has, has you know brought the british economy and the, the u.s economy yeah. and yeah around the world so um look forward to having you back martin <laughs> um, and yeah. so yeah let's talk a little bit about the 
the arms trade and how this yeah. relates to all this because that's like, yeah the reason i i kind of joined sure. your work in the in the first place so um what sort of size is the global arms industry and and yeah what percentage of that is is legal and what percentage is black market <laughs> if like if if you have like those sorts of figures so on average and it obviously varies from year to year but we could say that generally on average um the global trade in weapons that's small and light weapons handguns machine guns all the way to huge weapon systems like the f-35 fighter jet and aircraft carrier tanks etc etc the whole industry um is worth around 400 billion dollars a year 400 billion um in fact if you compare it to some other things pharmaceuticals um the financial services obviously it's actually not that big an industry but it's a huge amount of money to be spending every year on weaponry on stuff that is meant to kill other people um so in that sense um it's a quite big industry but not a huge industry um there are there are a dozen to 15 countries that are the the main players in this trade the us is obviously the biggest they produce around 40 percent of all the weapons that are produced in the world every year um, and interestingly they use about 40 percent of all weapons that are made in the near but they don't only use american weapons um israel is a very big player in the global arms trade and what is now called the homeland security industry which is an adjunct if you will of the arms trade and it, the reason I mention it now is because it's very closely associated with the U.S. arms trade. The U.S. gives um, Israel about $4 billion a year in military aid every year. That money actually never leaves the United States of America. It is effectively spent on partnerships between the Israeli defense industry and the U.S. defense industry. That is around the development of new weaponry, the testing of that weaponry, which often happens in the occupied Palestinian territories where there are sort of no laws and no controls it would appear that's certainly how israel behave um then the united kingdom is one of the top five players france germany spain italy um, a number of other european countries are smaller players um, russia used to be a much bigger player than it is today china remains a very big military power but not that big an arms manufacturer it does have an arms industry that caters primarily um, to its own huge military. But it's it's not, surprisingly, I suppose, it's not a particularly sophisticated industry. Mm. And its weaponry is not sought after anywhere in the world, whereas American and Israeli weaponry is. Um, oh, we're just better at killing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there, I mean, Bulgaria plays quite a big role. The Ukraine, interestingly, plays a fairly big role because the Ukraine was effectively the sort of the arms factory of the Soviet Union when it still existed. Really? Yeah, so that created a bit of a problem for Russia mm. when the Soviet Union collapsed. Is that yeah. still the case? No. Um, I mean, the Russian industry obviously relocated quite a lot to within the borders of Russia, but Ukraine still has a larger industry than it, and it would normally have had if it hadn't had that Soviet period. Um, but I think the most important thing that I should say at the outset about the industry is that, and especially, you know, in light of the economic discussion we were having, because it sort of transcends some of those boundaries. And to understand sort of what is legal and what is illegal, you need to understand this. 
the industry is basically you could call it a partnership if you wanted to be nice about it you could call it collusion if you wanted to be more critical or cynical about it as i am um, a collusion between these vast companies some of which are still state-owned in some countries some of which are partly state-owned most of which are in private hands so the biggest defense companies in the world lockheed martin northrop grumman boeing bae systems these are all private companies but quite honestly and i can't understate this enough um none of these companies would exist if it wasn't for state support because they're all appallingly run companies that would never turn a profit if it wasn't for the um captured relationship they have with the state mm. so the state is obviously their biggest customer it is also their biggest marketing arm mm. so you know the the biggest arms dealer in britain is the occupant of 10 Downing Street the prime minister the biggest arms dealer in the world is the occupant of the white house the president of the united states of america is responsible for negotiating the sale of more weapons than any other person on the planet and this is where the sort of the distinctions of legal and illegal become so difficult so there is a school of thought and a lot of legislation and international treaties is based on the school of thought that formal government to government arms deals where the US government um does a deal with the British government to sell it F35 jets that's a legal deal because it conforms to United States arms export control legislation it conforms to the international arms trade treaty um and therefore is a legal sale what would be an illegal deal would be if a company such as Lockheed Martin or BAE Systems was selling weaponry to ISIS for instance a non-state militia that has been prescribed by various governments and by international organizations and that transaction would take place in what they would describe as the black market um so it would be illegal in conception it would be illegal in the way in which it was carried out that distinction is not particularly helpful for the following reason first of all even the formal government to government deals have huge amount of illegality so in our legislation and in a lot of multilateral and international agreements we are not supposed to be selling weapons to countries engaged in conflict where those weapons could increase the likelihood of civilians being harmed in those conflicts somewhere like yemen well somewhere like yemen for instance where over 20,000 innocent civilians have been killed and we should talk in in more detail about yemen because it is a unique case you know the united states is involved in more conflicts than any other country on the planet so is an arms deal from britain to the united states actually a legal deal even in terms of british law that's a question the second thing is could you challenge that like would there be a mechanism by which like you could take that to court okay so here's the other problem the arms trade happens behind a veil of national security and post secrecy mm -hmm. so it's incredibly difficult to find out what is going on in these arms deals because every one of them i would argue has elements of illegality in it so a deal between the us and britain probably has some corruption involved mm -hmm. and corruption in both the united states and britain is illegal So is that a legal or illegal deal? 
Every arms transaction with Saudi Arabia has corruption in it. Arms deals with Saudi Arabia don't happen without bribes. I'm prepared to stake my life on that because I've, <laughs> I've never seen one. And we have very sophisticated, deep investigative techniques into these deals. We haven't investigated every Saudi arms deal in history, but we've investigated so many indicative deals and they all have huge amounts of corruption. So, given this veil of national security imposed secrecy, the trade operates in something of a legal vacuum. The illegality in these deals, be it selling to outlawed organizations or to what you know we might have called bandits in another era, perhaps, non-state militias effectively, um, is but one element of the illegality. But there are all sorts of other elements. None of the, that illegality ever gets meaningfully investigated. And it's incredibly rare for any case involving an arms deal to land up in a court. So the closest we have is we have in the UK, there's a great um, anti-arms trade organization called CAT, Campaign Against Arms Trade. Mm. They've brought legal reviews against the UK government saying that it's arms sales to Saudi Arabia of arms that we know are being used in the killing of civilians in Yemen are illegal in terms of British law, in terms of the EU common position when we were a member of the EU, in terms of the International Arms Trade Treaty to which we are a signatory. The first court, the High Court in this country, found that that was incorrect. And the basis on which that judgment was made was frankly absurd. It took mental and intellectual flip-flops like I've never seen before. Unsurprisingly, the appeal court overturned that. So it ruled that, in fact, British arms sales to Saudi Arabia are unlawful in terms of British law. It made not one iota of difference. The government simply continued its arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And when those were found out, the response of the responsible minister was, oh, yes, you're quite right. In the wake of that decision, there were at least three major arms contracts with Saudi Arabia, but that was administrative oversight or error. And we're sorry about that. And now what we're going to do is we're simply going to change the law so that those arms <laughs> deals weren't illegal, so that your legal review doesn't matter. And this is why it is such a unique trade. And it's important to point out that it is a unique trade because what I say about it doesn't necessarily apply to other sectors. But the reason it's such an interesting area of investigation is as a consequence of the secrecy for national security reasons, yeah. politicians, the most senior politicians and very senior corporate executives will do things in arms deals. I was going to say that they wouldn't dare do in any other sector or context. But, you know, I might have to exclude Johnson and Trump from that analysis yeah. because I think they actually do so much brazen stuff because there seem to be little consequences for them, which, yeah. which I find quite bizarre. Yeah. Um, but in, it's really, in general, really yeah. bizarre that the Democrats did not go after Trump for the, the profiting from the office of the presidency. Like the, 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 they decided to go with the Russia thing which was based on what turns out to be like, we don't know how faulty yeah. the information was, but they, they went hard with that and ignored the emoluments clause and really frustrated. Uh, so like, you guys can have him out of here tomorrow. Of course. So why did they do that? Well, they did that because they pretty much do the same thing, just in more sophisticated, less crude and brazen ways. You know, Johnson and Trump 
are not completely exceptional to our political elite. Mm. They are just less sophisticated, more brazen, more arrogant, and more stupid about the way they go about doing what most of our senior politicians do. Mm. So you say you wanted to talk about Yemen and yeah. the, sort of the exceptionality of the case. Like what, what is it that makes it like such a... So what, what is so important about it is we need to understand there has been ongoing civil conflict within Yemen for decades. It's a very complicated country politically, made up of uh, many constituent tribes, various other things. It was divided into two countries at one point. Um, it is a very complex situation. We're working on a book on Yemen and the arms trade at the moment. Um, what makes the conflict unique, I'm really talking about from March of 2015, when Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates got very involved in the conflict. Basically, the leader that they supported in Yemen was kicked out of office because he was dreadfully unpopular. Most of most ordinary, sorry, most ordinary Yemenis. Um, so I thought my phone was on silent. That's right. Um, so they decided they wanted to effectively take back control of Yemen. And the reason that Yemen is important for them is you've got to see the Saudi vision, which interestingly is also allied with the vision of Israel in, in the Middle East. So Israel and Saudi Arabia are now basically allies, which 30, 40 years ago would have just been completely bizarre. That hurts my head. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, it hurts many other sensibilities as well, I should mention. <laughs> but... Um, Saudi want to dominate the Middle East, and the one threat to that dominance is Iran. And Yemen is quite an important staging post for any attack on, on Iran um, for a variety of reasons. And so in terms of um, having control of the Middle East, what some might call having a sort of a, a hegemonic control over the Middle East, um, is Saudi's ultimate aim. Regime change in Iran is the aim of the Emirates, the Israelis, various others. And, and please don't for a moment think that because I'm critical of the Saudis and Emiratis, I'm in any way a fan of, of the Iranian regime. Um, I'm working very closely with the husband of a woman who has been jailed in Iran for over five years as a spy, supposedly, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Mm. Um, and she's basically being held hostage by the Iranians because Britain owes them a huge amount of money mm. um, on an old corrupt arms deal. See, I've heard. <laughs> we'll talk about that. We can definitely talk about that. So, you know, I'm not saying that the Iranian regime is one that deserves support or defending. Um, but Saudi, Israeli, Emirati and Western governments desire to see the Iranian regime overthrown by force, I think is deeply problematic because I think we have so many examples of how any Western meddling in the region has resulted only in um, dreadful immiseration and suffering on the part of the region as a whole and the deaths of literally millions of people. But what makes the Yemen conflict so unique is it's a conflict in which the Saudi Emirati-led coalition is intentionally targeting civilians. So, you know, and America and the UK are supposedly helping the Saudis with their targeting. And the reality is that UN expert panels and the UN expert panels have now been discontinued because of Saudi pressure on the UN Security Council. 
And But the expert panels, before they were disbanded, found that the coalition was intentionally targeting schools, hospitals, places of worship, places of residence, and places of work. And it's because of that that we have a very conservative estimate, over 20,000 innocent civilians being murdered primarily in Saudi airstrikes. And those airstrikes, everything about them comes from the West, the planes, the missiles and bombs, the training of the pilots, advice on the targeting. So, you know, this is a conflict. Every conflict has civilian casualties. But usually those casualties are what we describe as collateral damage, which is an awful term because these are human beings, but you know, within the rules of war, et cetera, et cetera. In this instance, these people are not collateral damage. They're being intentionally targeted. But could, you, could you make the case that that's genocide? <sighs> or just, but that just if they seems were, so yeah, for the definition, Yeah, for the definition of genocide, it would have to be all people of, of one particular ethnicity targeted because of their ethnicity, I suppose. But in, in broad terms, absolutely. I mean, if you just take the Yemeni civilian population, yes, I mean, they are being intentionally targeted by the Saudis and the Emiratis. And that immediately puts this conflict at a completely different level to any other that we've seen in a while. I mean, Vietnam, there were certain similar um, strategies on the part of the Americans who literally torched whole villages intentionally. Um, and it's to destroy the morale of the people and it is to destroy the structures and foundations of a society so that they have to be entirely rebuilt. And the Americans thought that their allies would do the rebuilding in Vietnam, and the Saudis think that they will do the rebuilding in a new Yemen that is a, nothing more than a vassal state of Saudi Arabia, much like Bahrain is. Um, so that makes it different, and that makes it an open and shut case in terms of being illegal in terms of domestic law, the UK, the US, all of the European countries, the EU common position on arms exports, the International Arms Trade Treaty, etc. But still, because national security is used to bypass pretty much anything, you can't even get legal decisions to stop these arms. So when there is a court case against one of these governments who are selling these weapons into the conflict and the companies and of course all sorts of dodgy intermediaries, arms dealers and agents are making billions out of these sales and a lot of that money goes into the political process which is a very important part of the arms trade that I'll talk about in a sec. But the fact that when CAT does a legal review at least half of the proceedings take place in camera, where Kat's lawyers aren't even allowed to hear how the government is responding. So there's nobody to hold the government to account. The government can say, well, we have evidence A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and that's why we've got to continue selling these weapons. And that could be total fabrication. And there is no one there to say, no, actually, here's the evidence. Here's the documented evidence. What you are saying is untrue. And that's what makes this such an exceptional case and why it is so problematic. One more thing, and that is that the reason that the global arms trade is allowed to operate in this way is not only because the primacy we give to militarism, to military solutions, to any sort of dispute, um, especially after the tragedy of 9-11, why we spend these indefensible amounts of money 
on on defense, on homeland security, on our militaries. Um, and it relates to how we generate fear amongst our populations. One of the reasons that the trade is able to continue to function in this way is because the people who benefit from it, and when I say benefit, I mean materially and politically, are the most senior politicians in our societies, are the military leaders in our societies, are some of the most senior corporate executives in our societies. What Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff and a former military colonel in the Marines, describes as the global national security elite. And if you look at how much money the defense companies give to political parties and political campaigns in the US, the UK, throughout Europe, you begin to understand that this forms a part of the economic foundations of our very corrupted and in my opinion, dysfunctional political systems. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 reinforced as well by the, the way the media covers it a lot. I mean, in Britain, it's not quite as bad, but I remember visibly when like, even Trump, who was like supposed to be sort of vaguely non-interventionist, at least rhetorically. And then I remember when he dropped that mother of all bombs on was it Syria. Yeah. Yeah. And the media were like, well, he's finally presidential. They were like cheering him on. Absolutely. They were like, yeah. <laughs> Our media has what the philosopher C. Wright Mills described. It has fallen into the military mindset that dominates our society. So we see everything through the prism. You don't think it's the sponsors militarism. as well? Well, of course, it's partly the sponsors. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful theorist, um, whose name just escapes me at Brown University, who talks about the military industrial entertainment complex. And he, he um, James Dedarian is his name. And he, he talks about Hollywood as being a branch of the Pentagon. You know, you see films like Captain Phillips, mm. where this is the triumph of the good guy, America. You know, they, they needed aircraft carriers and frigates to disarm two very scrawny Somalian pirates, that doesn't suggest to me that, um, that America is some great superpower. It suggests to me that it attempts to display its military might at ridiculous expense mm. to put down what are incredibly small threats to America. And that's why Hollywood is needed. That's why the media is needed. Ownership of media and defense companies. There's a lot of cross-ownership, which is not incidental. Mm. Yeah. So I think there are all sorts of levels to this. Mm. Um, and it also, and I'm going to use a phrase here that is, that is not very analytical, but forgive me. <laughs> um, it feeds into the mindset of what I describe as the establishment. And, and I say that as, you know, being a non-British person, I'm from the colonies. Um, and there is an American establishment just as there is a British establishment. And it reinforces the mindset of the establishment that enables the establishment to have billions of dollars at its disposal to dispense in the most extraordinarily corrupt ways that just keeps money circulating in our political systems. And, you know, the cost is, let's look at the reality that at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when the British government was struggling to give our frontline healthcare workers basic gloves and masks, 
they decided to increase our defense budget by 17.8 billion pounds. And Keir Starmer, the labor leader, I, I say labor in inverted commas, um, claimed that that wasn't a sufficient increase, that it needed to be more. Um, the budget for the first year of the pandemic, the military budget for the first year of the pandemic um, in the United States of America was well over a trillion dollars, 730 billion for the Pentagon, and then the balance on all the wars and various other things. Yeah, which got up this year. This well, of course it got up this year by Joe Biden. You know, the Democrats are as complicit in this. I mean, I use the example because it's, you know, people find this very difficult, but we show in the film, thanks to the work of a brilliant journalist called Jeremy Scahill, who some of you might have read, um, and, he, and, he, and he made a wonderful film as well about this, about US drone wars. Um, you know, for, for over a year, Barack Obama as president used to sit in on what they called the Tuesday kill list meetings. The meetings of this very small group of military leaders who decided who they were going to kill in illegal drone strikes the next week. And Obama actually sat in on those meetings and was part of agreeing targets to kill. And that included in one instance in Yemen, the killing of two US citizens, one of whom was 16 years old. No due process, no legal process. And, you know, if we extrapolate that to the whole world, this is what we criticize other countries for doing, for their behavior. You know, the Iranian regime, the Chinese regime, the Russian regime, the regime of Myanmar. But, you know, extrapolate what we are doing. We are deciding on a whim who we should murder. And we have total legal impunity to do that. Now, if everybody was doing that, the world would end pretty quickly because we'd all kill each other. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like so. I was listening to, um, and I need to watch the new, uh, I was just getting up the military entertainment mm -hmm. complex. That was interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Um, I also want to know, actually, uh, that this this idea that the, the media and the military have a lot of cross-ownership is something that I cannot remember who it was that brought it up recently when I was listening to something. But they, they mentioned that, but it's also um, like a lot of those big tech firms and the pharmaceutical industry and just basically all of the major players in every industry, there's a big cross ownership through the big financial institutions. Um, so it's, it's, it's like a really insidious way in which all of the tendrils of all of the wealthiest people are all sort of intertwined around the world. Well, you know, this is something that has existed for a long time. I, when I went to study in California, um, I was at the University of Berkeley at, in California and the local Rotary Club was an incredibly wealthy club. Why? Because a whole lot of its most senior members were making tens of millions of dollars out of Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program. Mm -hmm. Now, for, for those of your listeners who might not know, Reagan had this vision of Star Wars, which was basically these missiles that would intercept any other sort of weapon that was coming towards the US, etc, mm -hmm. etc. Et and it was always a nonsense. It was never going to achieve, but they spent billions on it. And the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory at the university was one of the scientific sites where they were doing work on Star Wars. They spent, I think it was over $11 billion and never achieved anything. There has not been one, one product or positive outcome out of the Star Wars problem. So that's, you know, that's how they get wealthy. So it's really important not to forget about the, the economics that underpin mm -hmm. 
um, this militarism, this completely out of control militarism. The other thing that I always quote when we think about, you know, what is the alternative to militarism? Well, obviously an approach that includes diplomacy. To show just how unimportant diplomacy is to the United States of America, the US government employs more people to run and maintain one aircraft carrier than they have diplomats across the entire world. What? The United States of America today has 11 aircraft carriers and are about to launch their 12th. So, you know, when it comes to a dispute, especially with some tiny island that has no military capability of its own, what are you going to do in that dispute? You're going to negotiate, you're going to try diplomacy, or you're just going to send, you know, three of your aircraft carriers that actually have nothing of use to do to some tiny island and declare yourself a war hero for, for having invaded Grenada, as Reagan did. And of course, you know, what do you do by that? Well, you continue to justify spending these trillions on this nonsense, mm -hmm. but you also get the political benefit of saying, I'm a war hero. I'm a war leader. Mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher would have lost power yeah. if it wasn't for the Falklands War that saved her. And, you know, Tony Blair, the invasion of Iraq. It wasn't only because he thinks that anything that America does geopolitically is right, because that's effectively what he believes. Um, it was also because he needed burnishing. He was coming under quite a lot of pressure from the left in his own party about all sorts of things. Um, benefits policy, um, part privatization of, of the NHS, public-private partnerships, generally deregulation, further deregulation of the city. Um, and this was, this was a great distraction. And, you know, how did Britain respond when that statue of Saddam Hussein initially fell? Because quite rightly, Hussein was a brutal, corrupt, authoritarian monster. But... Over a million Iraqis died as a direct consequence of the invasion. So, you know, there are many political and economic benefits to the ruling elite. The human consequences are too dreadful. And the media has a role that focuses on getting us to forget about the true human consequences. Chris Hedges, the brilliant American journalist who was fired by the New York Times mm. for publicly opposing the invasion of Iraq. Mm. And he had been held prisoner by Saddam's regime. So he was hardly a puppet of Saddam. Chris Hedges says, if the American public saw every day on their TV screens the human consequences of US militarism around the world, they would never allow their tax dollars to be spent on the mayhem, murder, and suffering we cause around the world. And he's exactly right. And that's why we require a supine media to play the role that they play. Mm. So the the thing that, that, that really strikes me is I was listening to um, Oliver Stone talking about his new JFK documentary. Yeah. And they talked a lot about how JFK was opposing this, like, military complex in a lot of ways that was they wanted to invade cuba a number of times they were happy after the cold war to try they thought maybe they'd go to nuclear war with russia they were like planning scenarios where they were happy to lose chicago with maybe 40 million americans and it's just like the level of just the ability to separate yourself from that amount of destruction is 
is stunning. And I I wonder if what we're looking at when you talked about, I can't remember what the exact phrase was, uh, like the global military establishment. Mm. Is that the the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about, sort of gone gone global? Is that is that Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, Eisenhower in his farewell speech, remembering that Eisenhower was a general, yeah. um, said in his farewell speech, the misplaced power of the military industrial complex. He actually wanted to call it the military industrial congressional complex. But his advisors dissuaded him from that because his party still had to work with Congress after he had gone. But he believed that Congress had been captured by these militarist um, interests. Um, he said, we must beware the un, what did he call it? The unfettered, I, these are not going to be his exact words, the unfettered power accumulated by the military industrial complex. And when I look at the power of what Wilkerson calls the national, the global national security elite. You know, we are talking stratospheres beyond what Eisenhower experienced. And he saw the dangers of it. And he saw the dangers of this militarist mindset that had enveloped the United States of America. And yes, absolutely. It, it encompasses so much of the world today. Well, Andrew, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to call a halt there. We've gone well past the hour. And um, yeah, I have someone else arriving in about 90 <laughs> seconds. Um, so I really, really want to thank you for your time. Um, I'm almost definitely going to have to ask you to come back at some point. Um, I'm hoping to be here more permanently in a few months and we'll uh, get you down once we have a studio set up and we'll, we'll talk more about yeah, interesting but horrifying topics that we've addressed today. So, do you want? Well, to... You know, the most important thing to say, and thank you very much for the opportunity, and I, I would be delighted to come back, um, is that we didn't even mention the fact that the trade in weapons accounts for forty percent of all corruption in all global trade, which is just a ridiculous amount. Um, so it has, it has impacts on the rule of law, on governance, um, on the probity of our public institutions that go far beyond conflict and, and militarism. Um, but I think it's great that you're doing this, that, that you're engaging with these topics, because I find the only way I can live, and this has been the case since I was a member of parliament in South Africa, the only way I can live with the knowledge that I have about these things. And I should also mention that my book, The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade, which is 555 pages, has almost 3,000 footnotes. So I don't talk about anything, I don't write about anything or film anything, unless I have huge amounts of documentary evidence to, to show that I'm talking facts. And you can actually just see that evidence in the footnotes, which is the purpose of the way that we do our research in our books, myself and my research team, um, which I think is very important in our, in our age of, of less than truthful politicians, if I, <laughs> if I can say that. But I think the best way to deal with this is actually to bring it to the surface, to make as much of this secret information, if you will, public, because that's the only way that citizens, active citizens, can actually do anything about it. And it was Margaret Mead, the British, the American anthropologist who said, history is changed by the actions of small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens working together. She said, it has always been the case and it always will be. And I think if we can learn about these things and confront our rulers and our politicians about them, that's how we deal with them. Well, that is a beautiful note on which to end. Uh, links for all your work will be in the description below. So uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. 
If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.